You are listening to the podcast series, Advocacy in Court, Preparation and Performance. In this episode, number 20, called How We Open and How We Close, The Critical Role of Atmospherics, we look at the importance of those atmospherics generally, and then we pay special attention to your opening statement and closing address, be it to a jury or a judge alone hearing. In our preparation for a hearing, we must be aware of the atmospheric, as it is both at the start of the trial, for our opening, and then at the end of the trial, for our closing. As advocates, we are aiming to ride the atmospheric, or somehow change it, or both ride and change it in that hearing room. So, what do we mean by atmospherics? Atmospherics covers the variety of prejudices, assumptions, preconceptions and prejudgment that are prevalent with any community and with any person. Examples and yes, these do change from one community to another and over time. These examples reflect how all of us have a starting point when we're told something, as the following show. A person of any gender who claims to have been sexually abused or abused in other ways within a relationship or a workplace either is assumed to have been a victim or is otherwise assumed to be making a false complaint. A politician accused of corrupt practice is guilty if you don't like their views or them or they're a victim if you do like them or their views. A police officer accused of excessive force is guilty if the complainant is a member of a recognised minority with a history of being so victimised, or, for another perspective, the police officer is a victim of reverse discrimination, that is, if the actions are being seen by colleagues or people from the same ethnic, religious or socioeconomic stream as the police officer is believed to come from. Yet another example... A person shooting a hapless visitor at their front gate is either saving themselves from an imminent home invasion or they're a gun-toting menace to society, depending on your views about the possession and use of private weaponry. But yet again, reflecting one's starting point of view, tenants must either be protected from rapacious landlords or, from the other side, landlords must be protected from scum of the earth tenants. Recalling early podcasts in this series, the interpretation of the Jack and Jill nursery rhyme may reflect a deep-seated atmospheric within each and every listener. Some listeners will interpret it through the pictures in the nursery rhyme book of their childhood, while other listeners saw no pictures but heard the rhyme in the context of many other rhymes whilst listening to the radio 
or some other recorded source. All of those rhymes influencing their interpretation of Jack and Jill. While, for yet other listeners, the Jack and Jill story is quite unknown outside of this podcast series. Atmospheric thoughts and entrenched beliefs come into the courtroom with every person who is present. Such atmospherics are always there. They cannot be kept out. They affect the approach of the parties, the witnesses, any members of the media, and the fact-finders. That's whether or not the fact-finders are lay people or trained lawyers. The atmospherics must be acknowledged and dealt with. Pretending that they're not there is not an option if you want to be often successful. Prejudices, prejudgment, partisanship, shape and drive the atmospheric. So you, the advocate, must identify the particular atmospherics that apply at your hearing and with great care play to them throughout the hearing. That means not only in your addresses, in opening and closing, but also in all of your questioning, be that chief direct, cross, or re-examination redirect. Note that in judge alone trials, such prejudice in the fact finder may occasionally ground a well-founded application that the judge should recuse themselves for actual or apprehended bias. However, keep in mind that any experienced decision maker is adept at keeping any prejudice that they have well hidden. Recall the previous episode, number 19, and the discussion of various forms of judicial misbehaviour. As for jurors, it would be foolish to think that the judicial admonition to them to, quote, hearken only to the evidence that you encounter in this hearing, unquote, is heeded by all. The instruction is at best aspirational, and sometimes, given the circumstances, bordering on the naive. It is one of those judicial soothers, about as unrealistic as expecting people to tell the truth because they've made a solemn promise to do that. Lies are a currency in our lives, and it is so easy to be forgetful in a witness box, especially as it is so stressful to be in that witness box. It's given those circumstances that prosecutions for perjury are so few. Now we have two opportunities to talk with the people who would decide our case while actually talking at them. The first opportunity is our opening statement and the second opportunity is our closing address. Now, though these talks, with or without written material and visuals, will not be interrupted if our audience is a jury, we want them interrupted if it is a judge alone, that is a bench trial. Why do we want such interruption? The answer is because we want active, real-time engagement by the audience with our reasoning 
so that we gain some insight into their thinking, be that through jury body language or from a judge's comments or questions. Such body language and comments or questions can give us some clues as to preconceptions and prejudices. If we have the skill to observe and consider those responses, then we hope to develop the capacity to change what we're saying and how we're saying it so as to better serve and influence our audience. That's not easy to do, but it's still worth striving to do so. It follows that in closing to a jury, we're paying a lot of attention to every body language cue we can pick up. Likewise with those judges who stay silent. It follows, of course, that if you're looking at a script, you're missing the most important information available in the courtroom. To encourage the mental engagement of the target audience with our opening story and our closing argument, we should do our best to make each of those sound, look and feel like a chat with them rather than a dictation at them. Now, whether, when, what and how we talk at the start and finish of the hearing depends upon several factors. This means considering such rules as what is the order of address on closing? When there is an opening, does the defence opening, if any, follow immediately after the P for prosecutor or plaintiff? Or does a defence opening only occur once the P party has closed its case? One also has to consider... Is there a maximum time permitted for an opening or closing in the particular court or tribunal in which you are appearing? Second factor to bear in mind is what is required by way of written submissions? This can be important on judge alone, bench trials, and is definitely important these days for most appeals. Third, the side that we represent significantly influences what we say and how we say it. Hence, in an opening, which I remind you is not an opportunity for argument, in an opening the prosecution or plaintiff wants to share the story and how it will unfold with the fact, fact finder. Such a story needs to reflect the storyteller's skill of gaining and keeping the attention of the audience. The defence party, on the other hand, may or may not want to share any alternate story. Now, in civil cases, cross-claims are a special case for a defendant who is a cross-plaintiff. It is likely that the defence, as a cross-plaintiff, will want to lay out the story behind the cross-claim. I say likely, I do not say inevitable. Retrials, 
or if you have prior sworn witness statements for both sides, um, as are commonly called depositions, are also special, as these entail that both sides know what all the witnesses are expected to say. In that situation, the defence party is quite likely to offer a detailed counter-story as early as it can in the hearing. Always remember that in making an opening, you're making a promise or promises. If you fail to deliver, that's a wonderful gift to your opponent in their closing. For that reason, sometimes silence is the best approach. Here's an example. A criminal case in which the defence is simply, the prosecution can't prove it. But to say that would be argumentative. What's more, the defence advocate does not want to give notice to the other side of likely lines of cross-examination. Hence, the decision for silence. In closing, you will be reminding the fact finder how you have met any promise that you made you'll also be reminding them of how their perceptions and perceptiveness have been satisfied by your case as you ran it. And you will be reminding them, more in sorrow than in anger, of how your opponent has fallen short. Now for any address, be it an opening or a closing, do not, repeat, not exceed the attention span of your audience. That's a matter of minutes. It does not extend to hours. Use visuals when possible. Some of those visuals will become or be exhibits. Others will be demonstrative aids, in which case be sure that you've obtained prior judicial permission to use them. With an opening, carefully assess the advantages over the disadvantages with respect to each of the following. First, whether to open at all. And secondly, if you open, how will it benefit your case and will those benefits exceed any downside? And third, remember that silence is itself a message and it may be the best message for you given all the circumstances. Turning back again to any address, be it opening or closing, then if we want audiences to listen, then... We need to recognise where they begin and we must go where they are. We cannot ask the audience to jump away from where they like to be to our starting block, which suits us but not them. Having got to the correct starting position, we must take the audience with us on a journey which is interesting for them and for us. 
We must keep that interest throughout whatever we're saying and we must not go beyond their attention span. We must recognise that decision makers, be they judicial officers or fellow citizens, can and do work out things for themselves. Talking at them to counter the obvious is not just a waste of time. It shows your desperation. It may also be interpreted by the audience as you're talking down to them. On the other hand, deft diffusing or reducing of the significance of points against your case is good. It's necessary. Likewise, finding a means to walk with their prejudice and preconceptions or, as necessary, to show them how that preconception simply doesn't apply in this case, even if it does generally. Such walking can be very worthwhile. Whatever approach you're taking, you must deliver at a volume level, with a slow pace and with tone changes, and allow the audience pauses so that they can take in your message. They might even want to make a note. Remember that when listening to this podcast, you can press the pause or stop button whenever you like. That's not the case for your audience in a court or tribunal. But all of this means that you must look towards the audience so that you can assess their reactions as they react. And your aim is to have the audience reach your conclusion before you get there. So that they have ownership of that conclusion and you are merely confirming a conclusion that they have already reached. Here are some tips of general application in opening and closing. Start strong, finish strong, and surround weaknesses with matters of strength so as to dissipate the effects of adverse material. Those of you who listen to the podcast episodes about cross-examination will remember the same advice in the context of questioning. Another point is, if you're lucky, there will be a pivotal point, fact, event in the case which favours what you're doing and make all other arguments secondary. If there is such a pivotal point, then be sure to emphasise it and make clear how it influences all other assessments that the fact-finder decision-maker must be turning their mind to. With circumstantial cases, always ask yourself, how helpful are the usual approaches to the argument? These are often put as either, quote, strands in a cable, unquote, or, quote, links in a chain, unquote. 
But do either of those reflect your case? They're overused. Is there a better and more compelling way to put your argument? For example, if X is accepted by you, the fact finder, as we've explained it should be, then we'd like you to accept that the likelihood of Y, Z, A, etc. is increased. But in any case, turn your mind to what, if anything, you want to say to the fact finder about the appropriate reasoning process to reach a decision. The bottom line for prosecution plaintiff parties is, when we all reflect upon what we have heard and seen here, brackets, unsaid is, using all the filters, both good and bad, that you, the audience, bring to your decision, close bracket, then we, the Pea Party, have met the persuasive test. We are over the line, and you, our audience, have reached that conclusion. In contrast, for defence parties, it is, having put everything through your decision filters, fact finders, then either, in criminal cases, your doubt simply cannot go away, or in civil cases, our case is at least as good as theirs, and so they fail, because they've failed to run a good enough case to overcome ours. To finish this episode with some matters that are important, but outside our usual attention, but to which more attention needs to be given in coming years. First, note the reluctance of appellate courts to endorse question trails being used by judges as a way to assist juries, or even to endorse a probability-based approach to the fact-finder's task. Never heard of either of these approaches? In that case, see some enlightenment on your favourite search engine and contribute to a better understanding of these options in the future. Secondly, for a worthwhile jolt to our conventional lawyer assumptions, read the book, quote, The Theory That Would Not Die, unquote, by Sharon Birch, B-E-R-T-S-C-H, McGrain, M-small-c-G-R-A-Y-N-E, as something that every litigation lawyer needs to understand. And if you are working in class actions, one would say an understanding of what is in this book is fundamental. Very aptly, Ms. McGrain opens with the famous economist John Maynard Keynes' remark, quote, When the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do? We advocates should all heed Keane's timeless remark, and we must make those we are determined to persuade also heed it by changing the path of their decisions, putting aside the atmospherics that they walked into the courtroom with, and instead following our path to reach our chosen destination. 
As always, I hope you have found that this episode is useful to the way in which you prepare and perform in court. And again, as always, I do ask you to tell others who you think might benefit from listening to one or more episodes in this series. Bye for now.